TED Audio Collective. When I was younger and people asked me what I wanted to be, I would say an architect. It made sense. I like math, I like precision, I like drawing, and I grew up in New York City with all those beautiful buildings around me. And then somehow when I got to college, I found myself drawn to econ and psychology. But I didn't know how these two interests could turn into a career until I met Professor David Thomas the summer after my freshman year and eventually began doing research for him, studying the career progression of people of color in organizations. David's now the president of Morehouse College. Back then, he was a Harvard Business School professor who became my mentor and a dad away from home. He's brilliant, thoughtful, and just one of those cool cats, someone I truly enjoy spending time with. He helped me see the impact you can have on people as an educator. But interestingly, when I told him I wanted to be a professor just like him, he knew me well enough to suggest that I give Wall Street a shot, nonprofits a shot, to try running something. He saw multiple paths for me, not just one, and gave me the confidence to go for it. 30 years later, I can't tell you how much I valued that guidance. It's part of the reason why you're hearing me say, I'm a Dubac Enola. This is TED Business. I'm one of many people whose journey has been shaped by mentorship. Those experiences in business and nonprofits that David suggested eventually led me to be a business academic and laid the foundation for the professor I am today. Our speaker today, the Welsh actor Michael Sheen, was also profoundly shaped by mentorship. In this talk, Michael tells us about the people and organizations in his working-class steel town that got him to the big stage and big screen. He underscores the value of community in uncovering and pursuing our dreams. Then after the talk, I'll share some language I used in my research to capture what Michael describes. But first, a quick break. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like artificial intelligence, big data, robotic revolution, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? 
Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. I didn't want to miss this opportunity to be able to tell you uh, a couple of stories that I hope you might enjoy. Uh, the first one is about the town where I come from. Uh, it's called Port Talbot uh, in South Wales. Uh, it's sort of, I guess, famous for a couple of things. It's got a steelworks. It's a sort of mainly working class town built up around the steelworks, big council estate to house the workers there that my grandparents grew up on uh, and that my parents grew up on as well. Um, And uh, it's also, I suppose, known for, weirdly, actors. Um, And uh, I said that this story was gonna be about the town. It's actually about a couple of people who come from the town. So this first story was told to me, it's from the horse's mouth. So one of the uh, legendary uh, sons of Patalbert, is, of course, the great actor Richard Burton. And the story goes that uh, the Richard Burton, at the height of his fame, uh, came back to Patalbert and was staying at his uh, elder sister's house, Sissy, who actually raised him uh, in Patalbert. And they were there in Sissy's house in Patalbert, and there was a knock on the door. And Sissy went to open the door, and it was a young, young lad. And uh, and he said, this young lad said, um, is, 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 is Richard Burton there? And, uh, and Sissy was like, Richie, come, there's a lad here to see you. So Richard Burton comes down and this young lad's standing there looking at him. It's the great Richard Burton. And uh, Sissy says, this, this young lad wants an autograph. And Burton said, uh, do you speak Welsh? And the lad was like, no. Well, not a proper Welshman then. And uh, Sissy says, this, this little lad is the son of uh, the, the Bakers on the corner, down, down from where the Regent Cinema is. And Burton said to this little lad, uh, I used to work at the uh, co-op just up the road from the cinema. I was hopeless. And this little lad couldn't believe it. He got his autograph. And this little lad grew up into a man who told me that not only was this an extraordinary moment for him because it was Richard Burton who was doing on the biggest stage what he hoped that he would do when he grew up, but also because this little lad felt like he was a bit, he was always told that he was a bit stupid, a bit top, as we'd say in Wales. And Richard Burton, the great Richard Burton, saying that he, he was always a bit hopeless as well, gave him such hope. Now, that little lad uh, grew up to be Anthony Hopkins. And Anthony Hopkins told me that story. And I, me, myself, growing up in Patalbert, it was knowing out there had been Richard Burton and out there now was Anthony Hopkins, two people who came from the same town as me, who sounded like me a bit, uh, who looked a bit like me, and but were out there. If it was possible for them, then maybe it would be possible for me. Now, that is an incredibly important thing. 
to see your background, your experience, your history represented out there in the world, having a voice, speaking on a platform, doing the things that perhaps you hope that you would be able to do. If you can't see yourself out there or anyone who looks like you or sounds like you, it's very hard to imagine that you'll be able to do that as well. And that's one part of what was incredibly important, I've realized over the years, of what was incredibly important about me being able to have the life and the opportunities and the career that I've had. But it's only one part. I've realized more and more as time has gone on how much I owe everything, all the opportunities I've had to other people and the work of other people. I come from an incredibly supportive family. My, all my family were into performing in some way, amateur performing in some way. So I knew from a very early age that it was something that you could do and that, uh, and that you got sort of brownie points for. Um, so that was important. And as time went on, my family were always there to take me to school rehearsals in the evening, youth theater, whatever it might be. They'd come and see me in any performance I was doing. And that meant a lot. It's, it's meant a lot more to me as time has gone on because, of course, I took everything for granted, didn't I, <laughs> at the time. Um, but, uh, but having that supportive family was incredibly important. And coming from a community, a, a working-class community like Portalbert, a steel town, it's not somewhere that you would expect to be that supportive of people going into the Ponzi arts, you know. Um, but Richard Burton had done it, Anthony Hopkins had done it, and there was a, there was a kind of nobility to it. There was certainly a, a respectability to it and a respect for what they had done. And so that made a big difference. But in some ways, I think the most important part was that I was able to do performances in school, drama in school, and then I auditioned for a youth theatre, local youth theatre. It was the county youth theatre. And again, at the time, I took it all for granted, but now I look back and I can see that there was an incredibly... Um, powerful youth arts infrastructure that had grown up in the area. Not by chance. It hadn't happened randomly. It was because one man, a man called Godfrey Evans, who was, the, uh, was a teacher at the, the comprehensive school on the Sandfields estate, that was the estate that housed the steelworkers' families. He had created an incredibly kind of progressive, liberal uh, theatre program in that comprehensive school. And eventually that spread to the entire county and he became the chief advisor of county uh, uh, of drama and dance in the county and created the youth theatre that I was a product of, that Russell T. Davis was a product of, many, many people. The youth dance company that Catherine Zeta-Jones was a product of, the, the orchestra, the, the, the brass band. It was an incredible, uh, diverse array of, of arts, all funded through the education system. And I was absolutely a product of that. And I joined the youth theatre. And at a certain point, everyone in our youth theatre just auditioned for drama schools, got in, went off to drama schools in London, went into the profession. I never questioned it. I didn't think that was strange or odd in any way. It was just like, that's what happened. And so that's what I did. And I got a grant to be able to go to RADA in London came to RADA and then, uh, and then left RADA, went straight into the West End, doing a play with Vanessa Redgrave, never looked back. As time has gone on, I've seen that pathway, let's call it, um, disappear. So I know that if I was around now, 
starting off, that pathway wouldn't be there. And I had tremendous advantages, I realize now, with the family, community, all kinds of things. And it does make me worry that not only has my pathway disappeared, my school um, stopped doing drama, school closed down eventually, um, grants weren't available anymore for people to go to drama school. Um, so I've seen my footsteps kind of disappear. And I think, I'm, and if someone like myself, with all the advantages I had, wouldn't be able to do it, what about the kids who are out there who don't have those advantages, who don't have maybe a family who can take them to youth theatre rehearsals or, you know, whatever it might be, don't have a school that push them, don't have that kind of infrastructure there to, to, to create that pathway for them. What happens to them? And then that leads to a bigger question, I suppose, of if, if young people coming from certain kinds of working class backgrounds uh, aren't able to come through into the arts. I mean, I was an actor, but it could be any, anything within the arts or creative industries um, or journalism, writing. The conversation that we have as a, as a country, as a, as a nation, as a community, what is that conversation like if we're only hearing from the people who are able to afford to get through to the point where they get to speak, get to have a voice? It makes that conversation incredibly one-sided. Um, I mean, there are figures that, you know, I can quote to you that I'll just keep to a few, but uh, the Office of National Statistics uh, reported a few years back that uh, of all writers in Britain, uh, 47% came from the most privileged social starting points compared to 10% coming from working class backgrounds. Uh, the Sutton Trust report in 2019 said that of newspaper columnists, so these are people who are really got a big part to play in, in setting what our national conversation is. Our newspaper columnists across the political spectrum, 44% of those newspaper columnists come from independent schools, whereas only 7% of the population generally go to independent schools. So there's a massive overrepresentation there. Um, and of those newspaper columnists, 33%, one in three, uh, are part of that independent school Oxbridge pathway, pipeline. And those are the people who are, you know, have an enormous part to play in setting what our conversation is. You know, who gets to speak? Who gets to tell their story? And how does it get told? And if that pathway is there for people coming through independent schools and through Oxbridge, and that's not just into acting or writing, that's across, you know, the top jobs across our whole nation. Where are those other pathways for people who are not coming from those sorts of backgrounds? It's so important that we start early to create those pathways. In some ways, I feel like it's too late by the time you're 18, 19, out in the world. How do you get people, young people, young kids, to feel like there's something out there for them, that they see themselves represented and know that it's possible, as, as Anthony Hopkins did with Richard Burton, as I did with them? Um, and how, how do you then create the pathway from that moment? And let's say that that moment happens where you see the possibility for you doing something. Where's that yellow brick road that goes from there all the way to actually getting into the industry that you want to be?
to be in. If that pathway doesn't exist, because it certainly exists for some people, if it doesn't exist for you because of some accident of birth and geography, what happens then? There will always be individuals who are able to break through in some way or get support and, and, and become the exception to the rule. But how do we change structurally our system so that it's not just about individuals breaking through, that everyone gets the same opportunity? So I found myself sitting at my kitchen table during the first lockdown, talking to Professor Katie Shaw about a project that she had been involved with that I was incredibly inspired by, the Common People Project. I suddenly had a grandiose vision of supporting people coming from working class backgrounds, underrepresented backgrounds in storytelling. And we started to hammer out an idea for a project that could go out into communities and towns and look for those people. We started to think about a project where people were given the opportunity, asked to, to get involved, um, and that were then supported through it and were, uh, uh, would get mentors. Uh, so people who've already uh, made a mark in the industry and the areas that they wanted to, helping them, supporting them, advising them, giving them a bit of confidence, and then to create a platform for what came out of it to be shared nationally and to try and influence industry and whether it's publishers or you know broadcasters or whoever it might be to open their doors and first of all to acknowledge the difficulties and the obstacles and then encourage people to come in to 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 to, to renew us to hear voices that we've not heard from historically um, and to hear of those experiences and those stories told by themselves rather than having their story told at them or to them that people are able to actually tell their own stories. And we believed that that would be an incredibly powerful thing, not only for the individuals involved, but for all of us. And so a writing chance was born through that conversation, really. We have 11 people who eventually who got through to be our first cohort who would go through the, the program and get mentoring and get the, the financial support and everything else. And I remember reading Stephen Tuffin's piece that he submitted. Um, which was about uh, caring for his mother in her final days. And I remember thinking, not only is this one of the most moving things I've read in, this, in these submissions, this is one of the most moving things I've ever read. It was an extraordinary, searing, incredibly raw, beautiful piece of writing. And in that moment, I knew that this was going to exceed all expectations. And it did. The 11 writers that we finally worked with for the last year, uh, reading what they've done has been absolutely revelatory. Whether it's reading about the experience of marginalized bodies by Grace Quantock, lift, lifting the veil on uh, what it is like to live uh, with a disability and how people relate to that. It's an extraordinary, everything she's written has been extraordinary. Stephen's piece, which about caring for his, his mother in her final days, I, as, I, as, I will never forget that piece. It will stay with me for the rest of my life. Um, there's David Clancy, hairdresser in Ulverston, talking about how he turned 
being having jibes thrown at him for being gay when he was younger, being kicked out of his own house by his parents um, uh, for being gay, and then having to move back into the house with his mum or choosing to move back into the house with his mother and father as uh, as the pandemic struck in order to look after them, that experience. Um, whether it's Maya Jordan coming to write her novel about the goddess of the River Seven, um, these are incredible pieces of writing from and with voices and experiences that I just never heard before. It's absolutely revelatory to me. To see their writing on a, on a, in a magazine, on a national newspaper, being performed live on stage, being broadcast on, on BBC Sounds in a podcast, this is extraordinary stuff. My, I remember Maya Jordan telling me that when the idea of being a writer on her estate, she said there were no writers on her estate, to say to someone that you wanted to be a writer, was like saying you wanted to be an astronaut. It was amazing to be able to go up to to Maya after the uh, after the live uh, performance that we did in Cardiff, and to say to her, "So, how does it feel to be an astronaut?" Support for TED Business comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is a lot of things. Odoo is award-winning management software. Odoo is total control of your entire company in one place. Odoo is a suite of fully integrated applications for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. Basically, Odoo is what your business needs to succeed. So if you're ready to get more done in less time, visit odoo.com slash tedbusiness. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash tedbusiness. Odoo. Business management made simple. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning, It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. In some ways, David Thomas was like my Richard Burton or Anthony Hopkins. He was a black academic. Yep, that's what we call ourselves, black academics. In fact, He was the first black professor I ever encountered. At the time, I didn't realize the impact this would have, but he was imprinting something on me. And I carried that imprint for 11 years until I felt 100% confident that the way I wanted to make my contribution to this world was through academia. His presence in my life created a pathway for me to become an academic. And one of the things I study now is how to give people, particularly women and people of color, access to opportunities where they're underrepresented. In one of my papers, my collaborators and I highlight the difference between gateways to opportunities and pathways to opportunities. Gateways are the more formal entry points into coveted institutions like the youth theater program that Michael was part of as a kid that helped him discover his love for acting and eventually guided him to the prestigious Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. 
or his own organization, A Writing Chance, which helps writers from working-class backgrounds get their work out in the world. These sorts of opportunities open doors that might otherwise be closed. But pathways are something else. These are the more informal processes that can make all the difference. Like Michael having family members who took him to rehearsals. Or Anthony Hopkins interacting casually with Richard Burton as a child and hearing all about the days where Richard Burton was just a neighbor working at the co-op and not a superstar signing autographs. Pathways are often about seeing somebody who has a similar background succeeding at their goals and their craft. Their mere presence offers a path you might never have considered possible for yourself. It's also mentorship, someone reaching out and keeping track of what you're doing, offering feedback, and lending their own experience along the way to guide you. My research is consistent with Michael's perspective. To create opportunities for people in our communities, we need both gateways and pathways. We need financial aid, funding, fellowships, and education to open doors for people. But we also need a supportive, creative community and the David Thomases and Richard Burtons of the world who will show us what's possible and cheer us on. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Pushkin Industries and fact-checked by Hana Matsudaira. Special thanks to Alejandra Salazar, Corey Hajim, Julia Dickerson, and Colin Helms. Talk to you again next week.